Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello, and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. I'm Chad Bray here at the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong. And this week, there's one word you can use to sum up the focus of the geopolitical relationship between China, the United States, and Europe. And that one word is Taiwan. We're going to hear from our Washington bureau chief, Rob Delaney, about statements made this week about Taiwan. We're also going to hear a bit more about a story that made headlines last week that seems to be coming back into view. That was the launch of a vehicle which orbited the Earth and returned to land. No, William Shatner was not on this one. Beijing says it was a space vehicle they were testing, but more and more American sources are saying it was a hypersonic missile test. And if it's true that all roads lead to Rome, then our European correspondent Finbar Birmingham is definitely in the right place. He's there to cover the G20 meeting and will give us a sense of the mood in the lead up to this weekend's meetings, as well as what lies ahead. It's a Halloween weekend ahead of us, so let's head off in search of tricks or treats. Rob Delaney is our Washington bureau chief and joins us now. Hi, Rob. Hey, hi, Chad. How are you? Good. Welcome. Uh, Rob, uh, a week ago as we recorded this podcast, um, uh, you know, we included a last-minute reference to a passing comment from Joe Biden about Taiwan. By Monday, they had been walked back, but here we are on Friday, and there's been, shall we say, a number of developments. So let's start with a statement uh, from U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. Can you unpack that for us, you know, what he said about Taiwan and the United Nations this week? Well, it's uh, I mean, I would say that it's very similar to what we've heard before. Oh, we hear the whenever Taiwan comes up and doesn't matter if it's a State Department, uh, State Department press briefings or whether it's White House press briefings. Uh, whenever that comes up, it's Taiwan is a uh, is is a model of democracy and protection of human rights and transparency and and on and on and on. I mean, this position about Taiwan is no surprise. But we do have this very lengthy statement uh, that that's been introduced. It's, it's been issued outside of the normal press conference kind of milieu where those questions get thrown at them. It was very proactive to have this statement come out, and uh, it's it's of course it's interesting that this statement comes out at this moment when we've got the uh, the PLA fighter jet sortie sorties sort of going around the island, uh, and and of course a lot of other developments which which we can go into. It's about the whole debate about whether or not Taiwan will eventually be allowed to participate in some way, shape, or form within the UN uh, context. And of course, we all know China's position on that. Absolutely not in any way, shape, or form. So uh, so this is just another one of these areas where, where you've got Taiwan as a major sticking point in U.S.-China relations. Uh, what to make of the fact that they're issuing that now? 
as a statement, but not really discussing it out loud and not making these, not actually voicing these comments. It's not clear. It might, it might just be another example of this ambiguity that we always hear about in terms of the way that the, the U.S. government articulates its position around Taiwan. And at this point, have, have we heard any uh, response from Beijing? Ha- has there been anything said by the uh, Chinese ambassador to Washington? The Chinese ambassador referred, when that statement came out, I believe it was, what was about two days ago, the, the Chinese embassy referred us to statements that they had previously made. And w- one of those statements was that uh, the, 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 the Taiwan authorities are, uh, quote, uh, brown nosing uh, other countries in order to in, in order to get some kind of legitimacy. Uh, and, and they issued the standard warnings, of course, about uh, Taiwan separatism, Taiwan independence and whatnot. Rob, it's quite interesting that this has come in, in, in the same week that the EU is, is talking about having its own meetings with uh, Taiwan. Um, but also, at the same time, we have uh, uh, an issue of uh, you know, U.S. troops in Taiwan. Just a few weeks ago on this podcast, we talked to Owen Churchill, and he talked about the presence of U.S. Marines um, in Taiwan to train soldiers using equipment as being not a huge secret, something that you know pretty much people knew in Washington and in Taiwan. But somehow it's back on the front page. We've had the Taiwanese president mention it. Yes, she was very direct about saying in, in her interview that, yes, there are troops uh, in Taiwan. So that itself, the fact that she confirmed it was very significant. Uh, and uh, again, coming back to the idea about uh, the, the ambiguity about, the, uh, about what's going on there, she, she then tried to play it down a little bit by saying, well, it's not as many as people think. So, uh, but we'll never get an exact number on this. Uh, again, it's important to, to keep in mind that I, I don't think it's a big surprise that there's some form of military presence, of American military presence in Taiwan. No one was sure, is, are these just advisors? Are there actual Marines on the ground in Taiwan? Uh, we still don't know exactly what that is, but but this does take us a step further, of course, to get the leader of Taiwan uh, saying that and confirming it to the international media. And, you know, uh, what does this say about sort of the, the, quote, strategically ambiguous policy that the U.S. has had towards Taiwan? It it certainly seems like it's less and less ambiguous as as we're seeing, you know, more public statements about troops. Well, I I guess I would say look at the way the ambiguity is still there. Let's be let's be clear about that. Uh, and, And we see that in the way that. President Biden said uh, very definitively, yes, when he was asked, would we would the U.S. defend Taiwan? Uh, Then then they walk it back. So ambiguity will uh, it it does appear that the only way that we'll ever know exactly what what the American government's what the Pentagon's uh, plan would be is in the event of some sort of military attack. On Taiwan, I, I don't think we're ever going to know for sure what exactly the 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 U.S. government's plan for Taiwan would be in in that sort of scenario until it actually happens. So, th- of course, there are a lot of anti-China hawks, uh, particularly in Congress, that push for some sort of move away from this 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 policy of strategic ambiguity towards Taiwan. 
but it, it doesn't matter. We've heard this before, and it doesn't matter whether you have a Democratic administration or Republican administration. U.S. presidents are very reluctant to uh, to show their hand on that, and and they're very reluctant to say anything beyond what the Taiwan Relations Act stipulates, which is that the U.S. government is required by law to support. Taiwan's defense capability, and that's as far as they will. That that's as concrete as we will get, and and it leaves open the question: Well, what does supporting Taiwan's defensive capability means? Is it really just missiles and guns, or is it okay? We're going to bring the Seventh Fleet into the Taiwan Strait and start launching our own fighter jets. We we just don't know. Against the backdrop of all of this, we have the G20 coming up this weekend and wanted to uh, ask you if you could give us a little bit of a preview. What, what does uh, Biden hope to accomplish there and, and particularly when it comes to U.S.-China relations? You know, what's on the agenda? Well, overall, Biden wants to wants to show up. He wants to uh, certainly take advantage of the fact that China's President Xi Jinping will not be there physically at the event. Uh, He wants to project an image of global leadership because the idea of American global leadership is has become uh, more tested than it ever has been as, as China has become much more powerful economically and militarily. Now, what does that mean in terms of the actual uh, agenda items? Well, they're going to bring up the, the global minimum tax rate, uh, which the OECD had passed uh, back at, uh, several months ago. Uh, so there, there are items like that. There are uh, there will also be uh, items regarding COVID, uh, certainly a COVID strategy. Uh, the, we we saw, for example, uh, the, uh, the Treasury Secretary Janet uh, Yellen issuing a joint statement with Indonesia's finance minister uh, Sri Mulyani earlier this week, which is very interesting. And uh, that was a that was a call for some sort of financial facility that governments that the countries could tap in the in the event or whenever the next pandemic hits. And I think the significance of that of that statement coming out earlier this week is that it shows a lot. It shows solidarity between the U.S. and a very significant member of the G20, Indonesia. It is a it's a, it, it's it's one of the largest developing economies. It's this sort of traditionally it's been very non-aligned. For Washington to show solidarity with a com- with a country like Indonesia is very important. So overall, Biden wants to show that he is in charge, that uh, that, that the U.S. is trying to take the lead in looking out in, in pushing an agenda that will be in the best interest of not only the U.S., but countries like Indonesia and, and all of the members of the G20. So, Rob, you mentioned earlier that Xi Jinping was not going to be there in person. Um who is going to be there? Do we have a sense about the China delegation? And, and also, uh, is she going to be there on Zoom? Uh, she will, in fact, be there on Zoom. Uh, but physically present at the meeting will be Foreign Minister Wang Yi. He'll be going instead. Uh, they, <clears throat> they're they going to need to have some kind of presence on the ground because as we hear so many of the analysts as they talk about 
G20, the one point that you hear so often is that it's difficult to get things done unless you're there in the room, unless you're able to read the room, unless you're able to uh, to look people directly in the eye. That's how that's how the most important things get done at these meetings. So uh, so China would certainly have to have someone. It, they couldn't rely solely on Xi Jinping show, zooming into the meeting. And, you know, while this is going on, talk of China's hypersonic missile has reentered the conversation. You know, I'm certain it's something that they'll want to talk to Wang Yi about. But, you know, who is talking about this? And, and why is a phrase sort of being banded about Sputnik moment about this? Because it, it, apparently this this missile test took many people by surprise and it, it comes in, in the midst of a debate that we've been hearing where we've heard Pentagon officials addressing, for example, the Senate Armed Services Committee talking about how they how concerned they are about the, uh, the, the amount of progress that China has made militarily in recent years. And several months ago, when when we had one of these hearings that that was it was specifically about missiles so the the pentagon is concerned about how uh about how advanced and about how precise uh, chinese missiles are becoming and then bang you've got this uh, word of this hypersonic missile test this, this missile that they basically send around the globe and it, it didn't hit its target but i think it was something like 39 kilometers uh, off target but still when you consider that it circumnavigated the globe at hypersonic speeds and still came that close of course that's cause for concern at the pentagon Again, another way that that the U.S. is, is concerned about sort of the growing military presence and and, and ties uh, that that they've targeted uh, Chinese companies that they say have military ties. One of them is China Telecom. We we saw them ban China Telecom and a number of companies from being traded in the U.S. and and being held by U.S. investors. But now the FCC this week has come along and and banned China Telecom from offering services in the United States. I mean, this almost feels like a throwback to, you know, the Trump administration and a number of things we saw towards the end of that administration. Why are they doing that now? Well, this is the this is kind of the end point of a process that was started actually under the Trump administration. So it was last year that the uh, the Federal Communications Commission notified uh, China Telecom Americas uh, and also the which, of course, is the U.S., unit of China Telecom, but the, the same U.S. unit for uh, China Unicom. And then there's another uh, th- th- there's another telecom company that is actually owned by uh, by the CIDIC group, uh, which, of course, is linked directly to the uh, central government in China. So the, all of these, co- these companies were all put on notice by the FCC that they would have to prove to the U.S. government or to the FCC that they were that they posed no threat at all in terms of what they might be doing with with the data of their uh, of, of those using their services in the U.S. And so that was last year. I, I forget exactly what which month it was, but uh, it, I, I believe it was actually August last year. And so what the FCC was saying in their in their regular open uh, open meeting that we had this week was that the the answers, the responses were not satisfactory. Uh, the FCC was not uh, convinced that the, that they were not a threat. So uh, so that was it. The, uh, the China Telecom Americas is uh, has 60 days 
to end their telecom services in the U.S., which are not not actually significant. Uh, a lot of the users tend to be those uh, traveling from China who uh, who bring their phones and want to use. The, uh, they're the, the the same company that that they use back home while they're in the U.S. Uh, but uh, significantly, though, those other two uh, Chinese telecom companies were what we learned at that hearing was that they will also uh, they're also very likely to suffer the same fate. Uh, so the um, the FCC chair at the, in the meeting said that they are also. Uh, they also plan to take action on these other two companies. So we're likely to see that happen. And Rob, c- could you update uh, us on sort of where things stand with, with, with some of uh, Biden's China policies? I, I know a lot of focus in the U.S. right now is on the infrastructure bill and, and how that's going to pass. And, and, you know, is it going to include sort of the climate, you know, kind of initiatives that the progressives want? Biden's China policy is, has not Changed since he's uh, since he's entered the White House. I mean, you've got he, he was very adamant that he wanted to see Congress pass this legislation that we saw the Senate pass a few months ago, which is in the form of the Innovation and Competition Act of 2021, which which a lot of people really label as as sort of a uh, national industrial policy aimed at subsidizing uh, or, or making really hundreds of, uh, of billions of dollars available to country to companies to develop advanced technologies. This is in particular this is as a in reaction to the advances that China has made in these areas. The problem that he's facing now is that there's so much acrimony over the the domestic, the other domestic agenda items, in particular, the infrastructure spending bill that he wants to get passed and also the uh, uh, the the climate legislation and social spending legislation that he wants to get passed. That what seemed to be a lot of momentum in Congress to get these particular China related bills past has is really taking a back seat so it, it again it seemed like there was a lot of momentum it seemed like there was that this would get done that these bills would and would wind up on uh, biden's desk uh, quite quickly what happened was it it did pa- the senate's version passed the house version is languishing right now again because there's so much discussion and so much uh, infighting even with within the democratic party itself about these other infra- about these other domestic agenda items so uh, not sure where that how that's going to pan out at this point really biden's uh, biden's main hope with respect to china is again to show up at the g20 to to show uh, that it is in charge and to to really show that it, it can lead globally uh, every bit, if not better than China can. Thanks, Rob. It's going to be a busy weekend for for you and the team following the G20, following uh, the beginning for uh, COP26 in Glasgow. Um, so uh, thanks again. We'll follow your analysis on SEMP.com. Thanks, Chad. Good talking to you. As critical news stories emerging from China continue to shape lives and business around the world, the weekly SCMP Global Impact Newsletter brings you expert analyses and insights on the economics of COVID-19, society, technology, and the environment. Sign up to receive your weekly email at scmp.com newsletters.
Fidbar Birmingham normally speaks to us from um, his stately Brussels residence, but this week he's in Rome as the G20 Circus rolls into town. Hello, Finbar. Welcome. Hey, Chad. How are you? Good. Th- thanks for joining us. Now, now tell us first off, uh, where exactly are you right now and, 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 and what's going on? Well, I'm sat in a hotel lobby. Uh, tried to find a quiet space to speak to you. Uh, I'm in Rome, as you said. I've just walked from my own hotel to another hotel where I'm attending an event ahead of the G20 this weekend. And the, pla- the place, the whole city seems to be crawling with police, as you might expect when there's a big summit like this everywhere. They have a heavy, heavy security presence. But, you know, it's a nice, crisp autumnal morning here in Italy. I'm not complaining at all. And, and, and uh, you know, I think there was some anticipation of protest in the area. Have you started to see some of those ahead of the G20? There's a big protest tomorrow, uh, environmental campaigners, um, you know, anti-globalization campaigners, the sort of usual crowd that follow these things around. They'll be kicking off tomorrow in the main square. And today, this morning, we've got a, a sort of a shadow summit as they're billing it, uh, organized by the Interparliamentary Alliance on China, which is a a hardline um, group of legislators who are calling for tougher uh, policies on China. They're going to have a sort of side summit, which I'll be, uh, I'll be attending, and I'll be sort of looking for some some colourful updates from that. So, Finbar, before we really delve into the G20, I want to start uh, with the stories that you've been filing recently about the EU and Taiwan. Could you tell us a little bit more about what's going on? Yes, yes, Chad. Just a wee bit of background first. Um, the Taiwan issue has overtaken Hong Kong, Xinjiang, and other China-related issues to be the biggest topic here in Europe, and I think in America too, in the West generally, the biggest China-related topic in the headlines. And just generally in the sort of political circles, Taiwan seems to be the thing that people are really focused on. Um, Last week, we saw the European Parliament for the first time adopt a paper, a policy report on Taiwan, which is not binding, but it essentially makes a list of recommendations to the European Commission and member states for their own policies on Taiwan. Um, this was met furiously by the by the Chinese, of course, who, who said that it was interfering in their domestic affairs. We had a, a small exclusive last week with uh, the interest. We had a, a letter um, that the Chinese ambassador in, in Brussels uh, had sent to the head of the European Parliament urging him to intervene in this vote. Um, so they're not happy about that. And then this week, Another story we had was that the European Parliament, there would be a small delegation of of MEPs going to um, Taiwan next week, about seven legislators um, traveling to meet with senior Taiwanese officials. And this comes on the heels of, of a sort of flurry of diplomatic activity this week. Alone, we've got Taiwanese Foreign Minister Joseph Wu traveling through Europe. He's been in the, in the Central and Eastern European countries of Czech Republic, Slovakia. I think Lithuania, he's going to Brussels and he's going to be addressing this summit that I'm attending today by, by video link. There was some speculation that he would be attending in person, but that's not happening. Um, I think that the, the Italians were not very keen for him to travel because don't forget the, the Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi will be attending the G20 in Xi Jinping. Things stead. So to have the four ministers of the Republic of China and the People's Republic of China in the same European city at the same time might have been a little bit awkward. Um, so this is the sort of the, the, the state of affairs. The, the Taiwanese issue is huge in, in, in Europe now. It seems as though, you know, this is one issue where politicians and governments maybe feel they can make some impact. I think there's a sense that on the issue of Hong Kong and Xinjiang, there's very little they can do that would materially change 
the situation uh, you know, in China is, is going to go forward as it sees fit. Maybe there's a chance that they may be able to have some influence on the situation involving Taiwan. Not quite sure if that's the case, but certainly that seems to be the thinking. Now, Finbar, let's turn to the G20. Uh, Rob Delaney spoke to us earlier on the podcast, and he was saying that uh, U.S. President Joe Biden is eagerly pushing his idea of a global corporate tax. What else are you hearing about some of the different agendas that are being pursued, uh, particularly by the Europeans at the G20? Europeans are very focused on climate issues, as you may not be surprised to hear. Um, They're really pushing for a deal on climate finance, which looks like it may not be achieved. Um, There's also, um, you know, pressure to commit to more more stringent um, global warming targets, as outlined in the Paris Agreement five years ago. They want to make sure that countries are committing to go closer to the 1.5 degrees of warming rather than the under two two degrees of warming that, that some have been pursuing. There's pressure to move, bring forward the targets of net neutrality and of zero emissions. Um, you know, so so the, so the EU is, as you, you know, the EU always is, is, is very focused on these issues. Um, there's going to be some negotiations about coal. Of course, we know that China has committed to ending financing coal-fired plants overseas, but there's still a lot of coal being burned in China. Um, so can the others pressure China to make decisions, tough decisions on those fronts? We'll see. I mean, a lot of this stuff has already been decided. The negotiations have been going on for months. Xi Jinping isn't attending, as I mentioned previously. We were speaking yesterday with EU officials who were saying that they're not too concerned about the lack of of presence. Putin isn't here. The Mexican uh, president isn't here. We also don't have Japanese prime minister here. So there's a few of them that haven't attended. Um, They said that that those nations that haven't attended have got perfectly capable negotiating teams. They're not too not too concerned by their by their by their lack of presence and of course for a lot of these climate issues that the european union is pushing china on china has great self-interest in doing this anyway um you know so the arguments that i've been listening to over the last couple of weeks are that um the best form of pressure that they can exert on china is to improve their own practices because it's very much a sort of competitive area as well so you know china china wants to be seen as a as a, a global leader it wants to be seen as a legitimate political system and so if china wants to to, to ensure that then the best way to do it is to lead by example so that applies to the european union and the united states too they can you know can pressure china perhaps best to act by leading by their own examples yeah, and, and, and whenever it comes to big gatherings like this, uh, you know, there's always you know, not only the formal statements that come out from these meetings, but there's the gatherings they're having on the sidelines. We often hear about them much later. Uh, can, can you give us a little color about how this is going to work, how, how you'll be able to cover something like this on the ground? Yeah, it remains to be seen. I mean, there are quite stringent COVID-19 restrictions. I've had to do a test yesterday. I have to do another one tomorrow. There's um, a whole lot of this um, going on. So I'm not sure how much access the press will have to the actual groups and to the actual leaders. Probably not great access, but there are huge teams that accompany these leaders about the place. It's not just the heads of state that travel to these meetings. They have Sherpas negotiating months in advance. They also have huge teams of of, of aides and assistants. So we're hopeful that we'll be able to get wee bits of snippets. And back to the point about um, some of the top leaders not being in attendance, I think one of the things that they will miss out on are those informal catch-ups with their peers. You know, um, I know that the U.S. has been very frustrated at C not attending because they're keen for FaceTime between him and and Joe Biden. Um, 
you know, so those informal channels of negotiations and of discussions are often more important than the very rigid round the table negotiating sessions. So, you know, th- that might be a sort of opportunity missed. Yeah, and maybe Wang Yi can hang his, hand his phone over to uh, uh, President Biden to have a, have a quick discussion. Uh, Finbar, thanks so much for joining us. We'll, we'll look forward to seeing all of your coverage over the weekend and your analysis on scmp.com. No problem. Thanks a lot, Chad. That's all we have on this Friday before Halloween. It's going to be a very busy weekend with the upcoming G20 meeting, as well as COP26 uh, Climate Summit, where people are saying this may be our last chance to save the planet. So stay tuned to scmp.com to see all the news, analysis, and in-depth reporting from our correspondents in Washington, in Beijing, and this time in Rome. We'll look forward to seeing you next time. I'm Chad Bray. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.